Justice uh, Radio has been a staple uh, right here on 103.9 uh, over the almost two years now. Uh, stellar job by Mr. Bruce Barquette, Ida Lassering, of course, the great firm Barquette Epstein. Every Monday night from 6 to uh, 7 o'clock, we'll preview tonight as well as some of the other areas in and around our justice system. Mr. Bruce Barquette joins us. No, I today. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, Jay. How are you? I am doing well, my friend. So, uh, just to kind of recap, verdict in as far as the Alex Murdoch trial, put a stamp on things. You got an appeal that will be coming, I'm sure, within the next couple of weeks. But a very quick three-hour deliberation, Mr. Barquette. Quick assessment and everything else that went down. Quite a week it was in South Carolina. It, it, it was, but honestly, it wasn't surprising, right? We we all kind of predicted. Um, that this would happen. His testimony was um, riddled with lies, and not just lies, but lies that he got caught in. And that's just a devastating um, fact or devastating event in front of a jury. Defendant gets on the stand. The burden doesn't shift, but realistically and practically it does. The jury is no longer analyzing the prosecution's case. They are looking and analyzing the defendant. If they believe the defendant, he's in the ball game. If they disbelieve him, he's done. And look, when I put clients on the stand, and I've done it many times, I tell them that they are under a what I call a one-lie rule. You get caught in one lie, big or small, you're done. Um, you don't get, it's not basketball, you don't get five or six fouls and a couple of big ones, you get none. You have to be perfectly truthful. Your testimony has to be perfect, uh, unflawed, Nothing wrong with it. And he, it was just terrible. And the worst lie, of course, was that he told police that he wasn't at the scene at a point in time just prior to the murders. And he maintained that story until he found out that the police had a audio recording from his son's phone that places him there a few minutes before the murder. And there was really, there was nobody else around. So it's, it's, it's sad. Uh, I have a, I have a son and anybody who has children knows that a parent killing a child like that is just a monstrous act and it is tragic but the verdict really wasn't surprising nor was the speed of the verdict that lie at the kennel that placed him that was Paul Murdoch's uh, phone the Snapchat video and everything else thus kind of leading to uh, Alex Murdoch taking the stand, and it sounds like Dick Harpooley and Lee Prosecutor didn't want that to happen. Uh, Murdoch insisted uh, and everything else. Do you agree with that assessment from Harpooley and Bruce? So what, what was the assessment? not want uh, Murdoch to take, the, uh, to take the stand. You know, yeah, the testimony well, earlier. I, I, th- I think he had... Honestly, in fairness to the defense attorneys, I think he was almost in a no-win situation. That lie that we just I just spoke about, that was already in front of the jury. The jury knew about that. They heard from the police officers. They heard um, the the tape. They knew he made he he lied. And so, what happens then? You either have the defense attorneys try to explain it away, or you put the defendant up there and have him try to explain it away. And Defendants get to make two strategic choices during the course of a criminal prosecution. One, whether or not to plead guilty or go to trial. And two, whether or not to testify. Every other decision is made by the attorney. 
who to call as a witness, how to cross-examine witnesses, what to do, what stipulations to sign, what to waive, what not to waive. It's all done by the lawyers. But ultimately, the defendant gets to decide. And here, uh, the defendant um, thought he could use his skill in the courtroom, which was uh, significant. I mean, he was a skilled trial attorney, and he thought he could turn the jury. But he wasn't He wasn't a lawyer. He was the litigant. He wasn't a, a one of the people arguing. He wasn't an advocate. He was the defendant. And uh, jurors view defendants much different than they view lawyers. So it was maybe the only decision he could have made, and it just didn't work out for him. And probably rightly so, to be honest with you. And it sounds like even with an appeal, it'll be the kind of the same type of of ending here. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, this is this appeal is is going nowhere. I don't I don't think the evidence here is overwhelming. And even if there are errors in the course of the trial, there's a concept in appellate practice for criminal defendants that's called harmless error. In other words, you're not entitled to a perfect trial. You're entitled to a fair one. Uh, the appellate courts will look at this and they'll say maybe there was a mistake here, an evidentiary ruling there that could have gone or should have gone differently. But overall, you got a fair trial. And because the evidence was overwhelming, one individual error would not have changed the result of the trial. And we're not going to reverse it and force this whole trial to be done again because there's a technical violation. So, no, I don't think the appeal is going anywhere. I think he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. We saw a picture of him um, in the Department of Corrections with his head shaved. Um, it's, it's sad. And, you know, my thought goes to the uh, remaining son because there's a son who's still alive, thankfully, uh, who uh, has his mother and his brother murdered and his father's in prison forever. Who might be in line for his own legal troubles down the road. We'll see on that case. Just horrific uh, circumstances involving this family over the last uh, couple of years, no question. Yeah. Uh, quick hit on the Angela Polina trial. Your assessment, Bruce, as far as what's going on there. Well, you know that John Laturco, one of our partners, tried Michael Valva, represented Michael Valva in his trial. So we, we have a more than a passing understanding of the evidence in the case. And I can tell you that the the defense is focused right where I thought they would be, which is that the um, the death of um, young Thomas was uh, the result of the father hosing him down in the frigid temperatures in the morning outside. And if you recall, uh, Angela Polina, according to the testimony, yells out to him, you, you can't do that. He's going to freeze to death. He's going to get hypothermia. And the, um, he proceeded to do it anyway, made that infamous comment like, boo-hoo, you're cold, or something along those lines. So the defense is focused where it should be, saying that that was what killed him. And to the extent that that was what killed him, uh, our client was admonishing the defendant, Michael, the, the father, not to do that. But after all, it's Michael's kid, so she only has a say, not a veto, if you will. And um, that's what killed him. So the defense is focused where it should. Uh, the prosecution is also focused on that point, that she recognized, their argument will be, she recognized the imminent harm. She recognized that this could be life-threatening. And she, while she said something, she didn't do anything uh, to help the child. And while she might, may or may not have a legal obligation to act, in other words, it's not her child, so she doesn't have a legal obligation to care for the child, uh, what 
doing nothing does is evidence of her depraved mind, that she didn't care whether or not the kid lived or died. Uh, it didn't matter to her. She made the point to um, the father that he could die and just brushed it aside, walked around, went about her business. They'll put testimony in about what she did after that. You know, made coffee, got dressed, went to school, whatever she did. It'll all be kind of routine things while this kid is freezing to death. And, of course, they'll make the point that was made during the course of Michael's trial, which is that um, she was the impetus behind these severe sanctions that were being imposed on these children, uh, and forcing them into the garage, uh, denying them food, making them, you know, um, use not use bathrooms, but uh, go outside to uh, relieve themselves. The scene that's painted of this house, uh, the prosecution calls it a house of horrors. And for these two young boys, that certainly is true. So we'll see how the how the jury takes it. I think um, they will allow her to take the stand or no? Well, again, what I just said, it, it's her choice. Now, smart defendants listen to smart lawyers, so we'll see. Whether or not she testifies, I, I would – I know the attorney. I don't know him well. He's got a kind of a flair for the dramatic. Uh, my own take on this is she can't help herself. She can't help herself. What, what's she going to say to all of the evidence that she was the, the, the motivating factor behind, behind these severe punishments? That uh, she, she, What's she going to say when, when they ask her, you knew that the kid was freezing to death out there, and while you made a mention of it, you didn't do anything. You didn't call the police. You didn't do anything to help him. You didn't care whether or not the kid lived or died, uh, which is the exact charge of the depraved indifference. Uh, so I don't think she can help herself. I think the facts are the facts. Um, I would rely on the lawyer. If I'm her lawyer, I'm like, I can explain this better than you can, and we don't need the jury focusing on you. We don't need you trying to explain the inexplainable for the severe conduct that you, or severe discipline that you, and then calling it discipline's insane, um, what you did to these children. So I think no, but I, I, we'll see what Mr. Tui does. He, he's He's not me. I'm not him, and I don't get to decide. He does. I might not. I don't think I'd put her on. I I think she would be a quick lunch, as far as the prosecution is concerned. Could be. I agree. I agree. Uh, so uh, we shall see. Crime and Justice Radio every Monday night, ladies and gentlemen, six to seven. Mr. Barquette, who do we got tonight? Well, we we're going to touch on the Murdoch trial. We're going to bring in an attorney. Uh, Stephen Barrick, who's tried 200 cases from California. Uh, he's been on Fox News and a number of different places. He's a frequent commentator for these kinds of cases. So we'll bring him on to chat about the Murdoch case a little bit. We're also going to take a little bit of a dive into Pamela Smart. Do you remember Pamela Smart? She was the woman from about 30 years ago who hired a lover or other people to kill her husband. Or at least that's what she was convicted of. People don't know that she spent the last number of years in New York's Bedford uh, Prison for Women because of safety concerns out of New Hampshire instead of being in New Hampshire prison. And she's making a bid for clemency. Uh, there's a big article in the New York Times over the weekend about the bid for clemency. She's apparently an ordained, ordained minister, has done great work in the prison, uh, is viewed as a, a kind of a leader among the prisoners has been elected as such a number of times uh, by all accounts has turned herself around inside the prison for whatever she did or didn't do 30 years ago 
and um, her lawyer is making a bid for clemency. So I, I think that's interesting. That's just the kind of thing that we like to talk about. It's not well known, although it was covered in the Times. So I'll take we'll take a little bit of talk about that. Of course, we'll talk touch on Polina's trial to some degree, and Trump is always an interesting topic because he's about to get indicted, isn't he? He's going to get indicted in a couple of different places. Well, he is uh, streamlining through CPAC and everything else. Uh, so uh, we'll see what that uh, does uh, to 2024. Meanwhile, the other guy continuing his uh, his situations in and around the country with his book and whatnot out in California. You know, the Pamela Smart thing is so interesting. I think they did a movie. I think it was a movie with Nicole Kidman. I'm, I think it was. Yes, absolutely. Look, uh, this was this. The trial was in 1990. It was a trial of the century before O.J. was the trial of the century. Absolutely. Uh, and that was a fascinating situation, uh, folks. Sentenced to life in prison without parole for uh, recruiting her teenage yeah, lover to kill her husband. Yeah. One of her advocates is a public relations person who does a lot of wrongful conviction work by the name of Lonnie Sori. He hails from Long Island in New York City. Uh, he's worked on cases like Marty Tancliffe's. He's worked on uh, West Memphis Three and a number of other wrongful conviction cases. Um, so he has been uh, helping with the getting the publicity, getting attention on this case. Uh, he does a great job with these cases. He really does. Uh, I know that lawyers get a lot of the attention, a lot of the credit, but I'll tell you right now that uh, many of these individuals do not get out of prison. I put Marty Tancliffe in that category if not for the publicity around surrounding their uh, attempts to get out. You, you really do need to turn the public's attention or attitude before you can get the judges involved. And Lonnie did a brilliant job with that with Marty. He did a brilliant job with the West Memphis uh, three uh, other cases. And he's working here for Pamela Smart along with her lawyer. So, We'll see how this goes. I would not be surprised to see her get out of prison, given her magnificent record in prison, and given the very good advocacy from her lawyer and from Lonnie. I think it was a media circus back in the day. Really, one of the first cases, uh, high-profile-wise, folks, uh, about a sexual affair that between a school staff member and a student. And again, it's yep. inspired that movie with Nicole Kidman. So, interesting. We will be uh, listening uh, tonight, my friend. 627 Crime and Justice. And, and a little little plug for Aida and I are going to take a little hi- hiatus for about four to six weeks. We have a federal quadruple homicide and international narcotics conspiracy trial that we're going to be doing in federal court in White Plains. It was a death penalty trial up until about a month ago when the Biden administration decided not to seek the death penalty against our client. But given that work, we're going to have to say, um, hold on to Crime and Justice Radio for a few weeks, let our colleagues take over, and we'll see you again, Jay, in um, April. But don't be a stranger. Give us a call every once in a while, and maybe we can chat. And you have uh, piqued my interest uh, at this point, even more so. so. Oh, it's, 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 it'll be a fascinating trial with us staggering amount of evidence on the surface against our client. Uh, he's been in jail for six years. Um, most notably, he was the individual in the cell when Jeffrey Epstein initially tried to kill himself. Um, so it's, it's, and it was a death penalty trial in the Southern District of New York up until, like I said, a few weeks ago. So we have Aida and I are our leading team. We have a couple of other lawyers from different areas in the country working on this with us. 
But we are about to embark into, um, they say, four to six weeks of every day, all day, fairly intense litigation in, in the federal court. So we'll see in the other end of that, uh, see how we do. Incredible. And uh, I'll tell you, we, we look forward uh, to, uh, you know, kind of recapping and everything else once we get you back in play. Excellent stuff, my friend. Bruce and Aida, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Crime Justice Radio. It's every Monday night uh, from uh, 6 to 7 o'clock. Best of luck in this case, and we will chat, my friend. Thank you. Talk to you later, Jack.